How Early Voting is Changing American Elections, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Many Americans are no longer voting in a booth on Election Day. How does early voting and voting by mail change American elections? Does it increase turnout? Does early voting data allow us to predict election results in advance? And will Election Day voting become more anachronistic? This week, I talked to Michael McDonald of the University of Florida, the foremost tracker of early voting and turnout data. He runs the U.S. Elections Project and is the author of From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. We review the results of the 2022 election and early voting over the last three cycles. We also discuss whether higher turnout is the new normal and whether redistricting turned out fairer this time. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. Let's start uh, with an overview of how people are voting in the U.S. these days. How many of us are still going into the booth on Election Day and what are the major alternatives and how many people do each? Yeah, so I first started collecting early voting data back in 2008. And I did that because the exit poll organization needed to know the size of the early vote to calibrate some of the exit poll numbers that were going to come out on election night. So they needed to know the size of the early vote in some of the states, and they had been running early vote polls. So they do phone surveys in states where there's high levels of early voting. You know, some states really have no option because places like Oregon and Washington, um, they don't have (laughs) any polling places uh, to speak of. So you really have to do a phone survey in order to uh, get a sense of what the the opinions of, of people voting are. So I started as a, uh, in 2008 and then just sort of as a lark, I just said, oh, I'll just post this online as a spreadsheet. People might be interested in that. And, uh, you know, when you have a million hits <laughs> to something um, that you've struck on uh, an idea or an, uh, you know, something that uh, people really want, information that they want. And, um, and that's what happened. And so I uh, just started keeping track of the early vote over time and uh, started noticing patterns in what was going on because I was collecting and processing the data and being able to see trends in real time as to what was going on with the early vote. Um, And so that gets the long way around to answering your question, which is what's been happening? Well, slowly over time, states have been been expanding early voting options. And uh, and so we've seen a, a general increase of the percent of the electorate that cast a ballot before election day. And uh, and so that trend had been continuing along pretty steady. It goes up a little bit more in presidential election, comes back down, it's kind of a sawtooth pattern, but generally the trend is an upward trend. And then um, suddenly the 2020 election happens and that trend is completely broken um, because people wanna protect themselves in the midst of COVID. And they're really e- interested and eager to vote too. So I think it's two things that were going on. And so that trend, we were about 40% of the electorate in 2018 voting prior to election day. Suddenly in 2020, we're at 70%. Uh, And so it was a question like, is this like a long-term change? Is this uh, this just a one-off? Are we gonna go back to the trend line? And the answer is actually, we went back to the trend line. Uh, so we were, we're going to be, again, we don't have all the data yet, so it's going to take a while to, to actually answer the question for certain, but we're somewhere around 45% of the votes in this last election were cast prior to election day. Um, and again, that just, if you 
we're drawing out that trend line, um, that's pretty much in line with the trend. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, I, I think as we look forward, we're going to continue to see this upward trend. Um, although I think we are reaching near the maximum of where the trend can go. Uh, there are only a few states left that are uh, left-leaning states that might adopt early voting um, options that, that haven't done so yet. And, um, uh, and so we're, I, I th we're kind of close to the end of it. Uh, and so maybe we'll end up around 50 or so percent of the votes um, will be cast prior to Election Day in future elections. And I know we call it early vote as, as a whole, but we have some mail voting, we have some in-person, um, people are able to drop off their ballot on election day uh, that they got earlier some, sometimes. Um, what, what, what are the major kind of pieces of that early voting pie and how, how, how different is it by region or state? Yeah, uh, so uh, you know, mail balloting and in-person early voting are the big distinction here. And um, it was primarily Western states that were first adopting in mail balloting first. Oregon was the first state to adopt it statewide in 2000. Um, through a ballot measure, and uh, other states were following uh, on that path. Actually, it can go way back to the 1910s, and Nevada was the first state to adopt um, all-mail ballot precincts because some of those mountainous areas were just, had so such small population, and um, it was difficult to set up a polling location uh, for those locations that uh, Nevada first innovated this uh, idea, I mean, a long time ago, over a century ago. Uh, and so it, it's really been that uh, has been the driver out in the West has been um, people live in remote locations. It's easier for election officials to run an election by mail rather than set up at a costly polling location that would be difficult for people to get to anyway. And you even see, of course, like we know, Utah has adopted uh, all mail ballot elections, but you also see all mail ballot elections being run in places like uh, Nebraska and North Dakota for the smaller jurisdictions in those states. So this is not exclusively a blue state phenomenon. This is a practicality phenomenon for Western states. And, and really mail balloting is the cheapest way uh, to run elections. So, um, and it's the most convenient for voters when they live remotely. Um, uh, that, you know, notwithstanding, people perceive it as being some sort of uh, democratic plot to change the electorate. Um, I, again, the, the research on it suggests that yes, mail balloting increases turnout. Uh, and we can see it again in this election as just as we've seen in prior elections. The all mail ballot states you know, like Washington are gonna have higher turnout than the national average, um, uh, but they didn't really have a lots of compelling statewide offices that might have drawn people to the polls. So it, it, it really does look like it does bring people in, especially in lower turnout elections, like local elections where um, uh, there may not other be, otherwise be a stimulus of a, um, to entice people to vote. Here, people get a ballot. And we know there's a lot of mobilization literature out there, out there that says if you get a reminder to vote, you're more likely to vote. It does seem like that having that ballot in hand being delivered to you does stimulate turnout. But here's the, here's the ironic thing. Uh, the literature, again, the academic studies that have been done on this um, suggests that it actually benefits Republicans. And I know people are not going to believe that, um, up, you know, up or down. They'll say, no, this is a Democratic plot. Uh, no, um, what 
uh, that stimulus does it 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 activates people who are already high propensity voters, and so um, uh, who are the high propensity voters? Well, by and large, they tend to be more Republican than Democratic, and so um, uh, when if you looked at the early studies and, and if you look around the debates of the um, adoption of Oregon of all mail balloting, um, there were a lot of um, uh, voting rights groups and Democratic groups that were opposed to mail balloting back in 2000 because they were afraid that uh, it would actually shape the electorate to be more Republican. Now, of course, Oregon's a blue state, so it's not like Oregon suddenly became a red state. These are just tendencies. Um, so, I, I, you know, it's it's really interesting that there's all of this, uh, yeah, everything that happened with the 2020 election has shaped our belief about what mail balloting does, but the academic studies suggest it does exactly the opposite of what everybody thinks. Um, uh, but, you know, again, you can't change people's beliefs very easily. And so um, that's where we're at in this, you know, trying to explain this to people. But for in-person early voting, um, that was actually first adopted in Texas uh, in the 1990s. And um, it was actually the Democrats who adopted it uh, right before they lost control of the state government. Uh, they thought it might help them with turnout and it, it might help them stave off a couple of elections, uh, you know, that that state trending to uh, the Republicans. Uh, it turned out it didn't do that. And um, there the literature uh, and the academic studies are more mixed on the effect of in-person early voting. Um, and uh, many people just find it's more of a substitution effect that people will choose to vote at a different time. It still helps in some ways to manage the election because you're... Um, you have fewer polling locations. You can have what we call vote centers where anybody in a county can go vote at that location. Uh, it helps election officials manage their resources better because they can have their uh, staff at these polling locations and um, they can help uh, troubleshoot any problems that may occur. So um, you know, from an election administration standpoint, uh, in-person early voting is still um, a good way to go uh, to help manage the, the volume and the workload of election officials. But in terms of like if it's partisan effects um, or turnout effects, it doesn't it doesn't really seem to have a large effect there. It's it's really the mail balloting um, and it's really the all mail ballot elections that do seem to uh, to matter most to turnout. President Trump uh, doesn't uh, seem to believe you. Uh, he uh, complains incessantly about uh, early voting, um, and that seems to have had an effect on the composition of early voting. Uh, how much did it deter uh, Republicans from using that option? And, and is that likely to change? Yeah, I mean, part of what people believe is they look at the, the usage and they can see re Democrats are much more frequently using mail ballots. But before 2020, if in states where there was multiple methods of voting, um, mail, in-person early and election day, um, mail ballotings tend to uh, be more, dem uh, more Republican um, uh, than the in-person early vote. That all got upended in 2020 because of the rhetoric that was coming from Donald Trump. And, you know, just as an aside, that's fascinating uh, that uh, you don't often see uh, behavior changes like we saw in reaction to a political figure uh, saying something. And yet here we see um, large swaths of voters changing the way in which they vote uh, because they are listening to uh, their leader telling them what to do. Uh, and then other people also probably <laughs> uh, voting in, in reaction to that as well. 
So I, I mean, just from that standpoint, it's fascinating to as uh, to see that the sort of direct effects on people's behavior. We don't often get to see that uh, in political science, but here we do. Um, now, in my book, which is uh, you know from pandemic to insurrection, voting in the U.S. presidential election of 2020, um, what we see there is that um, look, Donald Trump had a choice early on in the pandemic. And he decided to downplay it. We know that he there, he's on tape telling Bob Woodward that um, he didn't want to cause a panic. And so uh, any reasonable safety measures that might have um, uh, been implemented, like mail balloting to help protect people and election officials, um, uh, he disparaged that because uh, if he was to embrace it, it was he would have had to say, I'm embracing the idea that the pandemic is a reality and that people need to um, protect themselves. And so uh, I think what was happening here with the with mail balloting um, and Trump's uh, attacks on it weren't so much about the fraud or anything like that. It was more about uh, his vision and his uh, rhetoric about the pandemic itself and the intersection of that with uh, the safety measures that states wanted to implement and voters wanted uh, as well. And uh, and so um, it became a partisan issue because of that. And you could see election, well, elected officials, politicians at the state level mimicking Donald Trump's rhetoric around mail ballots uh, in some of these states where they controlled um, the legislative process and, or uh, governorships that would uh have to take action in order to um, implement the safety measures, and uh, and so what, what the the out, the, out, the fallout from all that is that um, uh, you know Republicans are now in places where there's multiple methods of voting. Again, uh, I have to add that little caveat on there. You see that uh, where in the past Democrats voted in person early, suddenly it's Republicans voting in person early. And where uh, Republicans voted by mail, it's suddenly Democrats voting by mail. So the, the whole um, way in which people voted has been upended. And it's not universal. There's some variations across states on this, but it's just fascinating. Um, one other thing about this, though, if you go look out in California, um, uh, it, it, there are some uh, Republican House seats uh, you know, House wins that are likely, um, you know, that were won under mail balloting. And uh, although we're focused on places like Arizona and Nevada because of their slow counts, uh, there's still slow counting going on in uh, in California. And Republicans aren't complaining about that because they, they won the elections out there. Uh, and remember what I said earlier, in a low turnout election, it may be actually Republicans who are benefited by mail balloting. So if it comes down to the wire in a couple of those um, races, it's not inconceivable. It was the actual mail balloting that helps the Republicans get control of the House of Representatives. Again, no one's going to believe that, but I mean, that's what the um, academic research uh, suggests. So 2018 and 2020 um, had historically high levels of, of turnout, and it looks like 2022 is going to come close. Um, what are the major uh, reasons uh, for that, and is this, a, is this a new normal of higher turnout? I think we are in an era of new uh, higher turnout. There are a couple of reasons for that. Um, but I think the biggest reason is um, polarization of our politics. Uh, people believe that the choices matter more than they used to. 
And when people believe that choices matter, they're more likely to take action. If you look back at the big arc of history um, and the last time that we had high levels of polarization, now we don't know if it was in the electorate, but we could see it at the elite level. It was happening in the uh, 1800s. And during that period of time, we also saw high levels of turnout as well, at least among the white males who were able to vote. So um, we've yet again entered another area of, of polarization. There's that old curse that may you live in interesting times. And um, that's what's happened, is that we now live in interesting times. People care about politics and they care about the choices. And so they they want to take action and vote. Um, presidential turnout rates have been going up for a while. Uh, and uh, it was kind of curious why the midterm turnout rates hadn't moved up with the presidential turnout rates. Uh, again, in a long history, you look at it, there's a pretty good correlation between uh, presidential turnout rates and midterm turnout rates. Um, so something happened um, uh, where there was a disconnect and suddenly in 2018, I think that disconnect uh, went away and we saw uh, a more you know, in-line correlation between the presidential and, and uh, midterm. So as long as we continue to live in these interesting times, I think we're going to continue to have high turnout. And um, you know, it, it matters because I think if you look at some of the poll misses and we're even seeing some uh, Republican pollsters mea culpas on uh, the election forecasting that they were doing with their uh, polling estimates, um, uh, they believed that the turnout was going to be low. And, um, and I kept saying before the election, um, you really need to look at those likely voter models. If you see um, uh, something that gives you an indication that, the turn, that there's a likely voter model, which is forecasting a very low turnout, um, you should be skeptical of it. And I think that's Part of what happened in the polling misses um, that that some of the, the Republican pollsters thought we were going to have a pre 2018 uh, midterm turnout, and instead we got something that was not quite 2018. We're down from the 50 percent. We're about 46.5 somewhere around there. Have to still have data and ballast account, but we're somewhere around there, and um, and and that's much higher than the 40 percent uh, that we've been in the last 50 years of. Um, uh, midterm turnouts. So um, I, you know, I, I think some people just didn't believe that we were going to have another high turnout election. Uh, they believed the past was the um, was predictive and 2018 was a one-off and 2020 was another one-off. And instead, it looks like we're just in a pattern of higher turnout um, for as long as people believe that their choice matters. And what do we know uh, so far about the 2022 uh, turnout? Uh, did it uh, differ by state and subgroups in the same ways that that uh, it has in the past? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see these very common uh, patterns in midterm elections where um, the states that have the competitive elections have higher turnout than the states without competitive statewide elections. So that's a primary driver. And in states where there was was no statewide election, uh, maybe because of timing uh, of the Senate elections or because they hold their gubernatorial elections off uh, midterm years, um, their turnout really uh, was very low. So um, that's a very common pattern, though. Uh, you need that marquee race to pull people to the polls. Um, Again, it probably mattered because places like New York and California, um, the voters there were driven more by a, a more traditional retrospective evaluation of the president. And if you look at the competitive races, it was uh, much more a choice that people were expressing between the, the visions of the different political parties. Um, if Democrats had somehow managed to 
nationally convert the election into a choice between competing ideologies, it probably would have saved them uh, control of the House. Uh, but um, it's hard to break through. The national um, media uh, pays, and of course the donors, <laughs> pay a lot of attention to those competitive races because they matter to control of the Senate. And it's just hard to break through on individual House races to say this House race is you know, really, really important. And look at this crazy character who's running for um, House. Um, it, it just doesn't resonate in the same way, and the media have a, a harder time following those sorts of stories. There were a few breakout stories like that, but for the most part, um, it's it's a it's a different narrative. And, um, and you know, unfortunately, I think for the Democrats, and fortunate for the Republicans, is that um, uh, that narrative didn't break through nationally with the U.S. House. And did the subgroups uh, look look the same? Uh, did the electorate look the same demographically? I know that um, Democrats. Uh seem to have been, uh, they're more educated now, but they're younger now. So maybe that washed out. Any Anything we can say about that so far? It's hard to say. I mean, uh, we really haven't gotten all the data yet. Uh, some states have started producing incomplete vote history files, um, and we can start to look at this. But um, the reality is, is that we're going to need um, uh, to wait until a few more months before we can really get a good uh demographic profile of the electorate using something like the Census Bureau's current population survey voting and registration supplement, which has a long time series on this and is a fairly consistent survey. So um, we're going to get you know pretty good read on it. Here's what I expect, though. Um, whenever turnout goes up, it goes up for everybody. Um, it, there's usually not one group that's left behind. Um, but those high propensity voters Yes, they vote at slightly higher rates, but um, that's not the driver. Uh, the The turnout increases are going to come from uh, groups that are like moderate to low propensity voters, and they're the people who are activated and participate. Um, uh, so that's what I expect. We're going to see turnout down from 2018. So a lot of people will make comparisons back to 2018, and they're going to say, hey, youth turnout went down um, and uh, and everything like that. But again, in the big history, if we look back the last 50 years, I think you're going to see things like younger people were voting at a higher rate than they have in the last 50 years, you know, excluding 2018, um, and other groups that had lower turnouts, you know, not the pointy head academics like ourselves, um, you know, we voted like 90% PhDs, but, um, you know, everybody else, you're going to see that their turnout rates were um, up comparatively that uh, compared with the last 50 years. So as you mentioned, Florida diverged a bit uh, from the national uh, patterns and, and moved more uh, red uh, than, than other states. Uh, any particular reasons for that and anything you think uh, is, is indicative for the future? Well, I, I think it has a lot to do with um, uh, DeSantis having a $100 million war chest and Charlie Crist only put up a token uh, campaign against him. Uh, donors were not attracted to his campaign. They knew that DeSantis was likely going to win. And uh, he was, uh, look, Crist was a former Republican. So, um, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's it's hard to contrast um, uh, DeSantis with a Republican-like candidate that the Democrats put up. Um, so I, I think that's really the story for Florida is that Democrats were not enthused to vote uh, in the election. And um, you can see it. I mean, DeSantis got about the same number of votes that he did in 2018. Uh, it's really the difference here is that the Democratic candidates got a lot less. Now, is it possible that there's some mobilization, some uh, persuasion going on here and that 
um, some people are persuaded to vote, you know, in, in crossover. Yeah, absolutely. But I think most likely the primary driver for the divergence from 2018 has more to do with turnout than it does uh, with persuasion or people changing their preferences. So as you mentioned, uh, we're still waiting for votes uh, from from several states, um, how, and that's sometimes blamed on on early voting or the early voting ballots uh, or the mail ballots taking longer. What what are the big determinants of why some states take so much longer uh, to to count the ballot, and and what are the big? Uh, how much does that matter to to, to people's uh, perceptions of of the election, and any way to fix it? Yeah, well, um, there are two things going on here. Uh, one is um, do states allow election officials some time to process ballots so that they're ready to be counted or even pre-counted uh, before election day? And some states don't do that. And so uh, places like uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan, and um, although there was a change to law there, but election officials said, oh, I think only one county in Michigan said that they were even going to be able to um, implement the law to allow them a couple more days to process ballots. Um, and Wisconsin. So these three key battleground states this narrative comes out of uh, with ballot dumps and drops and everything else out of the big cities as they're uh, processing those ballots late in the evening. Um, uh, that's one factor that's at play here. The other factor at play, though, is a place like Arizona, uh, which is uh, a state that um, allows voters to drop off their mail ballots at polling locations on Election Day itself. And uh, California does that as well. You get a lot of ballots coming in on that last day. And so again, it's just a processing problem. You've got to verify that those ballots were um, legally cast, that they're not deficient in some way. Uh, you're not going to reject them. Uh, and uh, you have to give people time to cure those uh, rejections. Every state allows that even a couple of days after the election. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's just a processing uh, issue for some of those states. And then the last uh, dynamic that you see is that there are some states like California, Washington, Iowa, um, and some others that allow ballots to be um, uh, counted if they are postmarked by election day. So they'll continue to count those even up to like two weeks after the election. And so we, um, you know, it, it takes a while to figure out how many ballots were cast in California because uh, they're going to have a million ballots dropped off on election day itself. And then they're going to have these ballots coming to uh, back in. I've, I've heard uh, Washington election officials joke that their highest turnout day is the day after the election, not election day itself, because that's when they're getting all these ballots back in the mail. So um, that, that's the other thing that that tends to happen. You know, fortunately for uh, you know California, Washington, we didn't have any of those hot statewide races that would have been drawing a lot of uh, calls of fraud. Um, but we did have some other places like uh, Nevada, which does allow um, ballots to be counted if they are postmarked by election day if they received five days after the election or four days after the election. And um, so um, they had a holiday, Veterans Day was, you know, came in. So it was actually the Monday rather than the Friday after the election. But, um, you know, so, you know, they, they had to wait. Um, and so what can I, what could we do about this? Um, well, one thing I think at least to deal with the ballot dump issue uh, that plagues places like uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and, uh, and Wisconsin is, um, there's no urgency for us to know the election results in real time. Uh, I think we can wait. <laughs> I think it's reasonable for us to like wait till Monday, you know, I don't know, noon the next day. Like, let's just give election officials a bit of a chance to count the ballots, make sure that there's no 
uh, errors because um, that can happen too. Like that happened in Antrim County um, with Michigan and it launched uh, several conspiracy theories about Dominion voting systems. Um, if they had just had a chance to realize, oh yeah, we had a programming error on our tabulation um, and it was because of a local election that had been dropped off uh, the ballot uh, or the tabulator and we had to reprogram it. They had the mail ballots. I mean, they had the paper ballots so they could go back and verify the votes were counted. So there's, there's nothing nefarious that happened there. But because there was this one programming error because they at the last minute had to change their tabulation um, and they made the, that error apply um, countywide instead of the one precinct where it needed to be applied to, um, that launches billion dollar lawsuits <laughs> um, and it undermines the credibility of our elections. And, and again, the, I just, I just have to keep saying this. It, it's just an error. Uh, it's not a conspiracy. It, you know, people make errors when 150 million people do something, there are going to be some errors. Um, and that's not a, a, any indication that there was some widespread conspiracy to, throw the election one way or the other. Um, you know, just the simplest explanation usually is just human error. And that's what happened there. And if we had a little bit extra time to check over the results, look for those sorts of human errors, um, then um, and then release them, there are going to be fewer of them. And uh, there aren't, aren't going to be the nefarious ballot drops. It's just going to be votes being counted. Um, again, we're going to continue to see some votes counted days afterwards. So it's not uh, a panacea for everything. But at least I think it would um, dispel some, or at least debunk, or, or not debunk, but take the, the teeth uh, uh, out of uh, some of these conspiracy theories. So tell us about the U.S. Elections Project and uh, what, what you have uh, going on and are, are going to be doing in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, the U.S. Elections Project was just a way for me to post my uh, updates to my turnout data originally. Um, and then... I started posting the early voting numbers on there as well and, and other data resources. And then we, um, for the redistricting, uh, we um, produced uh, precinct level boundary data with statewide election results data uh, throughout the entire country as well. Um, and so we're continuing to do those things. So I, 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 it's hard for people to believe this too. I process all that early vote data myself. Um, so I, it's like a grueling one month uh, trip through data formats and then some election office changes the format and your code breaks and yeah, you know, it's, it is grueling. Uh, and, you know, getting all those numbers out and then God forbid you make a mistake and then everybody's like, well, you know, what's the problem with that uh, number? You know, again, human error. <laughs> It's the most likely explanation. It's my error. Um, uh, so, you know, that's that's something, uh, putting my turnout numbers out there so people can use them. Um, Minnesota actually uses them as their official turnout rate because they're number one always in turnout. So <laughs> they like the numbers. Um, but, uh, um, you know, and other people use them for various purposes. I'm even starting to see people use um, the early voting numbers for academic work. Please don't do that. Uh, please don't use my turnout numbers now. Uh, they're not finalized at all. Um, so, uh, and even the early vote numbers are not the, the final numbers. I stopped collecting that data and some states don't report it all. In any case, uh, what are we gonna do in the future? Well, um, we did not get funded to produce the um, 2022 precincts. 
the boundary data and the statewide results. So, um, uh, but we still have a commitment to do that. Uh, over the years, I've been doing a number of um, uh, consulting projects through a, um, a vehicle that we have at the University of Florida to do different projects for paying clients. And so we're going to we've built up a reserve of money and we're just going to fund ourselves uh, doing the precinct uh, collection. Um, and, uh, and then we're going to sell it to, to clients, unfortunately. I mean, I, I, I can't I, it, there's sustainability uh, issue here. And uh, how do you sustain data collection? It's a thorny problem across just about every academic enterprise on data collection. How do you sustain it? Uh, so we're going to move to this um, subscription model, or we're going to sell the data. Um, I hope that you know if we can get enough money uh, through that enterprise and, and other work that we do, uh, that by 2028 we'll make all that back data available so that um, it's available again when we do redistricting. In the 2024 election, there's going to be even more interest in uh, election analysis and election data analysis, and I think the um, the, the places like Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, which is a U University of Virginia organization, or Cook Bloke Report, or, or the others, um, they all failed on, on the election forecasting because they uh, predicted overpredicted uh, Republican success. And myself and others were out there saying that that's not what the early voting data is telling us. It's telling us something different. So I think there really is an appetite um, for this uh, counter um uh, narrative that uh, some of these organizations tend to do which is they tend to be center right on their forecasts and um so i think that there's this opening that's been made for uh, another organization to come in provide a different uh data analysis it's not going to be looking at polls so much it's going to be looking more at early voting and and doing other sorts of election analyses of voter registration data and those sorts of things um, and uh, and it can provide a different context. I don't know what we'll find in 2024. Um, look, I if you look at my prediction, uh, which I did post on Substack, it's it, please do so, and you'll see that I, I was right. <laughs> um, I, I called every election right where we could use uh, the partisan um, uh, registration data uh, to forecast the election using the early vote, and and that's been consistent over several years. So, um, yeah, I made a couple errors early on when I was trying to devise the difference and difference approach. Um, uh, but I, I think by now, it, like it works fairly well. And uh, places like um, uh, you know, Nevada and Arizona, uh, we could clearly see that the Democrats had some strength there. And, uh, you know, conversely, North Carolina did not look good for the Democrats. It looked good for the Republicans and, and you know, and certainly Florida. Uh, Florida was an easy call for me to say that DeSantis and Rubio were going to win Florida. Um, and I was all able to do that looking at a different source of data other than the polls. So, yeah, what what are the uh, best ways that you can use early voting data before Election Day to, to forecast uh, outcomes? And what are the um, what are the potential problems with doing that? Yeah, it's uh, it's this difference in difference approach. So you don't want to look at just like the slice of the early vote at one cross section. Uh, you need to be able to compare to a past um, uh, uh, election and see what's changing. Now, again, it, there's lots of caveats, uh, which is that the election has to be run under very similar circumstances as it was in the prior election. Um, and then if that's true, uh, then you can say, well, maybe this change that we're seeing is perhaps a change of behavior. 
Um, it's a change of enthusiasm. And again, if I could go back to the easiest example, and this would be Florida, um, Democrats tend, registered Democrats tend to win, quote unquote, win the um, early vote in Florida. But when they don't, um, Republicans win. And so in 2014, I knew that um, things did not look good for the Democrats because uh, the uh, Republicans had actually, more registered Republicans had voted early than Democrats in 2014. So um, you knew it because uh, that's the, been the history. Republicans, if they're losing, the Democrats are at least uh, okay. But um, if the Democrats are not winning the early vote, then it's you know it's not going to be good for the Democrats. And that was even more starkly evident in 2022 in Florida. So it was an easy call. I think when all said and done, it was like 300,000 more registered Republicans had voted early in Florida. Um, so uh, it wasn't even close. So that's the sort of thing that you do. And guess what? The, the uh, poll averagers do the same thing, but in a different way. They do difference in difference too. They look at the polling misses that the organizations had in prior elections, and they adjust the current um, uh, estimates that they have from pollsters based on the performance that they did in the past. That's exactly what I'm doing with early vote. It's just a different data source is all that's being plugged into the model. Um, and so I, I really don't understand um, uh, people who say their early voting data is, is information is um, worthless. Don't uh, don't look at it um, because there is information there and uh, you're being a fool. Quite frankly, I think you're a fool if you don't look at it because um, uh, you uh, you're, you're just disregarding another source of information that might help you reach a better conclusion about what's happening with the election. And I look at polls, too. So it's not like I'm like exclusively looking at early voting. Um, you want to think about the whole gamut of everything that's going on to try to understand um, uh, what's happening in an election. You don't want to focus on just take in all the data. Take on all the information. I think that's your best uh, way to move forward when you're when you're doing any sort of uh, analysis. So I think the hesitancy was that we only have a couple of, of elections um, in some of these states with large early voting numbers, or we only have, or we the last one that we had was in pandemic conditions. So I guess uh, do do we now have enough data to make these uh, comparisons in in most places where we're going to see substantial early voting? Well, I. I I did not make a, a, a forecast out of Pennsylvania because the law had changed. Um, and so, uh, you know, and that's uh, that's part of the difference in difference. You have to assume that um, there's been no change to the, um, the conditions under which the poll was run or the election was run. And I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's the same thing with the pollsters. Uh, they assumed that the polls, all the major polling organizations, didn't tweak their um, uh, their polling methods because of the miss that they had in 2020 or in prior elections, which is just ludicrous because the pollsters, uh, their whole reason for being is to make accurate predictions. So if they flubbed a prior election, they're going to look at themselves and they're going to say, hey, what did we do wrong? We need to improve uh, our polling methods. And so um, I think that's where people made some mistakes. They just assumed that there was this Democratic bias in some of these, uh, you know, major battleground states. Uh, when no, there there wasn't really a, a bias there. The, the pollsters had, had changed themselves. So to go back to it, I mean, yeah, in a state like Pennsylvania, 
major change to law. And they used to have excuse required uh, absentee voting in 2018. Now they have no excuse. Um, you couldn't really make a, a comparison of 2018 to 2022 to know what um, what that information was telling you about um, the, the behavior changes because it was driven by a change to the law and not just a change in behavior. Um, but you know, going to, forward to 2024, it's going to be really hard to look back at 2020 and make comparisons of 2024 to 2020. So I'm. I, my sense is going to be that our best bet, remember, we've been, it looked like we reverted back to the trend line uh, that we saw um, and uh, in the early vote. So uh, I think the best comparison is going to be for 2024 to go back to 2016 uh, and make that comparison where we can make that comparison where the election hasn't changed in some fundamental way, too. So this was also the first uh, cycle after redistricting, and uh, you've done a lot of research in that area as well. It, it looks like nationally that uh, it's going to be pretty proportional between uh, votes and seats uh, in, in Congress, but obviously with a lot of variation across states. So what do we know so far about the effects of the latest redistricting cycle? Yeah, and, and just <laughs> to, to make underscore it, I mean, virtually everything that we know about the partisan composition of the districts across the country and the partisan effects of redistricting are due to the effort that we did at the University of Florida. Um, everyone was using the voting and election science team data uh, that we created and, um, uh, you know, with just a few exceptions, the, you know, people, states might have created their own databases. Uh, you know, so what does it tell us about um, uh, things that said, look, reformers over the last decade, um, and it's been really been going on for a few decades now, have really pressed for redistricting form across the country. And um, they've been largely successful. I mean, um, you know, not 100% successful. There were some places where there were Republican gerrymanders, and there were some places where there are Democratic gerrymanders, and some of those are very consequential, maybe not for the overall partisan composition of Congress, but certainly at the state legislative level, uh, it's hard to look at Wisconsin as being a democracy anymore when it comes to its state legislature. The Democrats simply cannot um, uh, win control of that chamber uh, or, or legislature um, because of the way in which it's been gerrymandered. Uh, it seems, I know the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court looked the other way on this, um, but I, it's hard to think that they really have a representative government um, in uh, the state legislature of, of Wisconsin anymore. Uh, so there are some very consequential consequences for the state governments, um, but uh, as a whole, the, um, really we're looking at a successful reform effort and um, should there still be, um, are there some problems? Yes, uh, we had three voting rights violations um, in, uh, in uh, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana, that unanimous decisions that even uh, Trump appointed judges um, uh, said that uh, um, these were uh, shut and dried cases of section two voting rights violations. Uh, and the Supreme Court uh, basically stayed to those, um, uh, the decision out of Alabama and the other courts just followed suit at the lower level and said, well, we'll wait for the Supreme Court to, to make a judgment on this. So it could be that um, we'll see the Supreme Court uh, neuter the Section 2, as they've already done to Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. That is a possibility and I think a very real one. Um, 
uh, were there other places like uh, here in Florida where there, I think there's a violation of Florida's constitution? Um, you know, and it'll be up to the Florida Supreme Court to decide if there was a, a violation of Florida's constitution. So, you know, unfortunately, there were some places like that. But on the flip side, we had places like Illinois um, uh, gerrymandering as well for the Democrats, but other places where there were Democratic gerrymanders, places like New York and Maryland, um, the, the courts took the lead and, um, and overturned those uh, maps. And so, uh, and that happened was also going on uh, with uh, states like Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Um, and so the courts at the state level have been good about uh, intervening. Um, could we get courts everywhere to do it? Uh, because the Supreme Court basically has kicked at least partisan gerrymandering claims back to the state courts. Um, and hopefully I would, uh, you know, I, I still hope that people will do the right thing um, and they can see that there's clear um, uh, intent to dilute the vote of African-Americans in uh, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana, and, um, and in violation of not only the Voting Rights Act, but the 15th Amendment. Um, but we'll see what the, uh, I don't, I'm not going to hold my breath for the U.S. Supreme Court to rule otherwise. So what are the first things you're going to be doing with the 2022 data, and uh, what uh, should we look for going ahead to 2024? 2022 day, I'll continue to process it. <laughs> uh, again, it's a grueling uh, um, thing. I, I, I can't constantly scan. I'm, I'm only, one, only one person. So I'm not sitting here every evening looking through all the state websites to see if we've gotten certified results yet. So I, I generally take my time. Uh, we Some states, we don't even have the final numbers. I'm just guessing on uh, based on the vote that we do have and what I think might be outstanding within those states. Um, so um, we got to get the certified results. Um, once we get the certified results, uh, again, one of those consulting projects that we're doing is we're providing maps and data to the Almanac of American Politics. So uh, we'll be uh, providing all of the um, election results to them. Um, and then we've got a couple of paying clients for the precinct data at the moment. And so, uh, again, I'm hopeful that uh, we're going to hit upon a sustainability model with this so that we can make it available. And then again, in the future, uh, you know, we'll embargo it for now, but uh, then we'll make it available down the road. Um, uh, I have, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in some questions like what, uh, one of the questions that uh, Dan Smith and I, who are at the University of Florida, have been working with Matt Barreto uh, at UCLA on is Hispanic cohesion in South Florida. Um, uh, the Cuban American population votes much differently than the uh, non-Cuban American population there. Uh, they're all Hispanics. I mean, Miami Dade's like 75% Hispanic. It's an incredibly diverse um, uh, Latino community. And um, and so uh, I, I'm looking at that cohesion and, and what does that mean for voting rights issues? Um, that's an interesting question that people haven't addressed yet. Uh, so we're looking at that. Uh, we have a paper we've already presented on that and we're gonna crunch more data uh, once we get the 2022 um, uh, uh, data through. And, th and that'll be able to answer some of the interesting questions like uh, what really went on with um, uh, Hispanic voting patterns in Florida and Hispanic voting patterns elsewhere. I know people have already started to look at this, looking at county level data, um, and they're seeing a reversion back to the uh, before the 2020 election um, in Hispanic voting patterns in places like Nevada, Arizona, this Texas border. Um, and, you, you know, I, I, I thought that was what was going to happen. I thought 2020 was a one-off because um, when was the last time we saw 
uh, a big move towards the Democrats among communities of color. That was 2004 when Bush was an incumbent president. And so I think there's a, a matter of incumbency that plays into um, uh, some of these voting patterns among communities of color. And remember, back to 2024, Karl Rove was heralded as a genius because he figured out how to uh, capture uh, um, Latino and, and African-Americans. Um, and this was going to completely transform the Republican Party. Um, that didn't play out <laughs> when Barack Obama came along, right? And so, um, I, but that's not, again, a surprise because, again, a presidency has a lot of powers and perks to it. So I'm, I'm not surprised by this reversion. Um, I don't think it necessarily played out in Florida in the same way that it played out in some of the other states. But that's one of the things that we really want to do is collect all that data up and, and uh, be able to say something meaningful about these patterns of voting uh, that we've seen um, uh, using the precinct data rather than polling data to come at uh, a measurement in a different way. Uh, lastly, we're, we've also collected a whole bunch of data on redistricting. Uh, so, um, uh, and that could, uh, we've collected every redistricting plan um, that was produced, uh, at least publicly, um, where we can get the electronic version of them, I should also say, because some states didn't like really make them available very easily. So, um, uh, so uh, we're going to analyze those and we're going to talk about the, um, uh, the transparency on the redistricting process. It's been a, a yeah, you know, I've been supportive of these reform efforts over the years, um, especially in the terms of their transparency and accountability uh, issues that um, plague redistricting when it's done behind closed doors. What what can we learn uh, from from the new book? Well, you know, a lot of what's going on now um, in terms of the voting patterns are just a continuation of what started in 2020. Um, and uh, when I first wrote that book, I was um, it was really in the midst of the uh, early on in the pandemic, and I was getting all these reporter calls asking me, how does mail balloting work? And so I'd spend two hours on the phone with uh, a reporter explaining to him how mail balloting worked. And then I talked to Rick Hasen about this, and Rick said, well, you know, you should write up a little explainer so that the, you don't have to repeat yourself every time you talk to a reporter. I said, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. So I started writing up a little explainer. And, you know, that's one page, two pages, three pages. It's like a whole book chapter. Um, it's two book chapters. It actually ended up being two book chapters. Um, and so I was just like, yeah, this is just a book. This isn't, um, uh, this isn't a, a, a little explainer. Um, and, uh, and so then as the election progressed, I just continued to archive news stories um, as they were happening in real time and uh, doing data analyses in real time that I could see um, uh, had something interesting to say about, you know, like, did the death of a poll worker um, in, or an election worker, I should say, in, in Fulton County, how did that affect the um, ability for the election office to conduct the election? And, uh, you know, sadly, you could actually see operations affected uh, in Fulton County. Um, and so, um, you know, to go back to it, though, I mean, the, the book, is really, we have to give a lot of credit to the election officials who managed to run the highest turnout rate election that we've seen since 1900. That's really remarkable. And they did it in the midst of the pandemic. Some people 
really died. I mean, I, 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 there's no other way to say it. I mean, they died from the pandemic and the conduct of their job. Other people got sick. We don't know how many other people were sick that their loved ones or other people that they knew. Um, so uh, it's in some ways it's, you know, it's a triumph, um, but it's also a tragedy because we didn't have to expose people. Um, we could have run all mail ballot elections nationally and tried to reduce exposure. Uh, but the legal battles that went back and forth and with Donald Trump um, disparaging mail balloting, believing that the Democrats were somehow going to benefit from it, um, that unfortunately um, took its toll. And, you know, the other thing that, and we're still seeing this to, to today, um, the, uh, the conspiracy theories that say that um, uh, uh, somehow elections are fraudulent, um, some people decide to take action on that. It, certainly the insurrection was part of that, but also um, we see threats against election officials um, uh, and, and they're continuing even in this election. I mean, uh, people watching polls and intimidating people that happened. I know there were a lot of high profile stories in Arizona about that, but it was also going on in North Carolina um, and uh, and there were two poll workers in um, uh, Georgia that had to be removed from a polling location uh, um, because of the conspiracy theories. And then, and now we have the Maricopa County um, elections official who had to go into hiding uh, because of death threats against him. I mean, th this is this is insane. Um, and uh, there are good people being run out of their positions, and um, it's very troubling. I, I know. The election deniers lost by and large at the state level, but they're still active at the local level. And uh, I think um, as we're talking about this on November 21st, here's a prediction. I think we're still going to see problems with certification in Arizona. Um, and uh, it could be some other places in Nevada, too, that we might see some certification issues. And, and it could be other places like Texas had some problems with it in prior elections in New Mexico. So um, I don't think we're entirely out of the woods yet. And there's still mischief that can be played at the local level, even if um, we withstood um, some of these attacks on our democracy that were happening at the um, at the state level. And uh, and so it's the story. The book really isn't done yet. Um, it, it, you know, I had to finish it at some point, get it off to a publisher. But unfortunately, I think uh, we're going to continue to see uh, some of the themes of the book uh, play out uh, over, um, you know, the 2024 election. In some ways, again, the um, some of these people are just saying the 2022 election was a dress rehearsal. It wasn't the main event. They believe that 2024 is going to be the main event. So, um, uh, yes, it's good that we managed to get through without a major incident in 2022. That's great. But. Uh, I really don't think that we're out of the woods yet for 2024. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, I recommend checking out these episodes highlighted on our site. Will Trump anger motivate black turnout? How voters judge Congress? Did the 2022 election show us how Democratic campaigns win? How information about politicians persuades voters? And how much are polls misrepresenting Americans? Thanks to Michael McDonald for joining me. Please check out From Pandemic to Insurrection and then listen in next time. Mm -hmm.